Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Popular Culture podcast. I'm Professor Matt Sinkowitz, an assistant professor of communication and international studies at Boston College, and I'm the new host of the channel, uh, Popular Culture Books. Uh, and a uh, little housekeeping before we get going. If you would like to contact me, uh, give me a tweet. Send me a tweet to at Media Studied. That's M-E-D-I-A-S-T-U-D-I-E-D. Uh, interest in hearing your feedback from the podcast, but even more so interesting uh, f- uh, in hearing from people who have books that they would like us to discuss, because uh, that's what we do here. Uh, about twice a month, we bring on an author of a book uh, that's recently been released, uh, something that sort of uh, crosses that line between a, a popular culture book and an academic book. Uh, and this week, we have a very exciting guest. We've got Professor Kevin Corain, uh, the author of Dollar Sign on the Muscle. Uh, Professor Corain teaches at the uh, English department in the University of Delaware, uh, and one of my favorite things about uh, Professor Corain is the breadth of his research. Uh, his his uh, biography uh, has a wonderful range to it. He writes about literary journalism. Uh, he's the editor of a book on the Irish writer Billy Roach, uh, and perhaps uh, most uh, most uh, importantly to me, a book that's, uh, that, that means a lot to me is this book, Dollar Sign on the Muscle, that we're talking about today. Uh, this is a, a combination book, much like Kevin uh, is a combination scholar. It's a history of baseball scouting. Uh, it's an ethnography of scouting, uh, done in, mostly in the 1980s, but he's returned to it for uh, the re-release of the book, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, and more than anything, it's, it's a reflection uh, on the simultaneous kind of joy and futility that's built in, in any effort to predict the future. Uh, and so uh, I want to welcome uh, Kevin to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Uh, so, Kevin, this book uh, it has an interesting history. You, you originally wrote it in, in, the, in the early 1980s, 1980, is that correct? Um, I followed the 1981 81. baseball season with the scouts, and the book didn't come out until 84, by which time some of these young players the scouts had been looking at were in the majors, and others had already fallen by the wayside. Anyway, the book came out in 84. It's been through various versions over the years, going out of print and back in print, and has been had been out of print for about 12 or 15 years when Baseball Prospectus got in touch with me and not only brought the book back in print but made it possible for me to travel around this past summer with a new generation of scouts and to kind of get a different perspective uh, on, on baseball scouting. Mm. Now, this book is uh, sort of a, it's, it's a legendary thing in, in what's known as the sabermetric community. People uh, uh, who belong to the Saber Society, this is the, the uh, sort of the, the more statistical and, and historical-minded branch of, of baseball fans, a certain sort of nerd culture. Uh, and this book, which, uh, as Kevin noted, came out in 1984 originally, uh, was available but in very small print runs. So you could go on to uh, eBay over the past uh, decade or, or Amazon.com and find it listed for uh, you know, fifty dollars, sixty dollars, uh, and uh, so this is this is the first opportunity for many people, uh, including myself, frankly, to who have a limited uh, reading budget, uh, to come and actually purchase your book. Uh, and uh, this is uh, this has brought uh, a whole new attention to it, I assume. 
Yes, it has. And um, I'm never going to get rich off this book. But one of the nice things about baseball prospectus is that they've given me plenty of copies. I'm sending it around to scouts, scouting directors and so on. They like it. And that's the audience that I feel is really most important for the book. I think they see themselves and their work reflected in a way that usually is ignored by sports writers. And it's very pleasing to me to feel that the people in the business think that it at least got some aspects of the topic right. But it's not, to be clear, it's not really a statistical view of baseball. It is historical, however, and I think maybe the Sabre people are keying in on that aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, this is a book that, uh, it's, it's a very unique uh, unique thing. I mean, it's been recognized by Sports Illustrated as one of the, the best sports books of all time, uh, but it was also released uh, in one of its editions by the University of Nebraska Press. It really has a, a crossover audience uh, between people who are, are reading this just as baseball fans and people who are you know, scholars of the game. Well, I'm, I think that may be because there's something about baseball scouting that is so unpredictable. I mean, it really, I remember when I went to spring training in 1981 uh, and was just beginning the project, one of these old scouts said to me, did you scout your wife? <laughs> and, I, and I thought, you know, there's something inherent in the whole enterprise of scouting where you're trying to judge human nature as well as athletic ability. Um, football scouts and basketball scouts who are working on the pro level are looking not that far ahead, maybe just toward the next season, to ask whether an athlete can help the team. Baseball scouts really are looking at younger talent that's still very green, and in some cases trying to guess what kind of person this young athlete is going to be. If he makes it, it may be five years ahead. And so some of the baseball scouts talk almost mystically about what they do. Mm, yes, uh, the, there is a there 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 is also a language to to this whole world, which I think is intriguing, uh, both as as a baseball fan and just sort of a somebody who's interested in culture. Uh, and I think that the title of the book draws upon this in a in a, in a really uh, intriguing, excellent way. Uh, again, the name of the book is Dollar Sign on the Muscle. Uh, could you tell us, uh, you know, give us a little background on on that that terminology and uh, and did you know this before you started writing the book? Where, where did you first come across the term Dollar Sign on the Muscle? Well, I had access, uh, partly because of where I live and who I know, to the Philadelphia Phillies back in the early 80s, um, and had a copy of their scouting manual their, that their scouting director gave to all of, the, all of the people on staff. And the term dollar sign on the muscle just kind of jumped out at me. It originally comes from Branch Rickey, the great innovator in baseball in so many ways, And um, I loved the line he had in one of his books. He said, it is indeed a risky business to put the dollar mark on the individual muscle. Mm. Um, So anyway, it used to be, before big money got into the bonuses that uh, baseball players received when the first signing, um, that, that scouts would have on their scouting reports a line with a dollar amount that they would risk if this player were on the open market. And it was like an imaginary poker game. Um, so that at that time, I'm going back now to 1981, $100,000 would have been thought to be the, the acme of mm-hmm. a bonus that you would give an amateur player. Nowadays, it would probably $6, 7000000 maybe 
a little less than that now that new restrictions have been put in place. But in any case, uh, today, I think that the scouting forms that baseball, uh, that scouts have looking at amateurs, might not have that line on the form. That is, I think general managers are making, <laughs> making decisions about bonuses that scouts used to make as part of the recommendations. But it seemed to me a resonant phrase. I mean, it, it, uh, it shows up a lot in the way people think about how much athletic talent would be worth. No, absolutely. It's, it's a, a wonderful way of, uh, of laying bare the economics of, of this, uh, this very human enterprise and, and the, the sort of uh, that, that, that intersection of commerce and sport, which is, which is at the heart of it. Uh, you mentioned Branch Rickey in, in, uh, in uh, describing the, the origins of the term, uh, and the first part of your book is uh, essentially a history of baseball scouting, uh, and the, the character that is uh, overwhelmingly pre- omnipresent uh, throughout it is Branch Rickey. Uh, he seems to have put in uh, many of the, of the standards. He's developed many of the innovations that we still uh, see today in, in the sport and in the scouting process. Can you talk a little bit about Rick, Rickey's uh, role in developing baseball scouting? Yes. You know, Rickey, around the turn of the century, was a player... He was a catcher, and I found it so intriguing that so many scouts and talent evaluators began their careers as catchers because they see the field very open and entire with that strategic perspective. In any case, he at, a, um, uh, at the University of Michigan uh, and then later a um, general manager of the St. Louis Browns. Hello? Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, I'm sorry. I was hearing some electronic buzzing in the background. Um, He was the first to develop what we now call the farm system, and this would have been just after World War I, where he was growing his own talent, so to speak, instead of buying uh, professional players from independent minor league teams. It was a huge innovation uh, in the acquisition of talent, and uh, because of it, the St. Louis Cardinals became a dominant organization between the World Wars. Um, he then carried over to the Brooklyn Dodgers some of the same innovations. But, uh, of course, he's best known as an innovator for having broken the color line right after World War II by signing Jackie Robinson. I just found in, ni- in the 1980s, when I was traveling with scouts, that Branch Rickey, although he'd been dead for 15 years, was still alive. I mean, that is that they talked about him all the time, whether they were talking about teaching, coaching, uh, evaluating, uh, the language of scouting. Um, And so he really was, I think, uh, so far ahead of his time. I really wonder what he'd be doing if he were here today. You you mentioned uh, this process of, you know, when when you, you realize Ricky's importance due to the the not just his lore in the game, but also the, the type of research that you underwent here, that you were actually traveling with scouts. Uh, and it is interesting to see how steep scouts are in the history of, of this process. Uh, what was it like being an outsider, being a non-scout, playing this, this role of ethnographer? Did you find it easy to uh, join into this culture, or was it a challenge? Well, it was much easier than I thought it would be. I had the idea that scouts would be crusty and grumpy and resistant to sharing their thoughts. They are, of course, protective of, of information that would be um, part of their, their own organization's uh, current strategy. But if you ask a baseball scout 
you know, what's the biggest mistake you ever made? Or how did you get started in the business? Who taught you? Uh, what do you look for when you look at a pitcher or a hitter? Uh, they love to talk. They have opinions. They feel neglected. And many of them are very lonely people because they're on the road a lot. And I think in general have been overlooked in the history of the game by a lot of the analysts and sports writers. Um, so I found them very genial. I think they, I used to think I loved baseball, and I do. But these guys have a dedication to it beyond what most of us could, could uh, imagine. They're underpaid, I believe, and underappreciated. So I found them very uh, welcoming. Uh, and uh, on the rare occasions, you know, they wouldn't want to be bothered while they were working. But a lot of them enjoyed sitting at a game with somebody who at least understood what they were up to and would make remarks that were wonderfully quotable and, and incisive. So I, anyway, it was a joy to do. I really appreciated um, the, the access that I received. Can you talk a little bit more about that process of, of integrating? Of uh, Is it the kind of thing where you just sort of uh, uh, you show up, you sit down next to them and start chatting? Or, or how, how did you actually sort of make the contact get into the process? Well, this project began because I knew a fellow named Brandy Davis, who was a chief scout, a cross-checker for the Philadelphia Phillies. And um, so he gave me access, and the, the Phillies were wonderfully generous. The Carpenter family owned the team at that time. And they thought, uh, particularly Ruley Carpenter, who was the Phillies' owner and chief executive, um, said, I remember early on, he said, you know, this would just be good for baseball. So what happened, Matt, was that I was being uh, led from one guy to another. They'd say, you know, if, you, if the, you're really interested in this, go talk to Howie Hake of the Pirates and tell him that I told you to get in touch with him. That kept happening. People would say, oh, you really want to know about this? I'll tell you who to talk to. They would give me phone numbers, and this was really before email. So I was calling people up or running into them at ballparks, and each person I interviewed would lead me to two more. It was becoming you know, almost impossible to keep up with the references I was being given. But I don't, you know, it was a wonderful uh, introduction of the game. And I, it was a way to look at baseball that I'd not experienced before. Um, most scouts really are not at the game to see who's going to win. They're, it's like going to a play with a, uh, a casting director. And so they're looking at individual talent on the field. And so it would sometimes amuse me that they wouldn't know the score of the game. But when I was going between innings to get a Coke or something, their eyes would be glued on the shortstop taking his practice grounders and throws to first because they might not see that many uh, you know, chances that he would have as a fielder during the game. So it was, they would zero in on talent in a way that I had really been uh, doing you know, when I watched games, and they would be seeing aspects of, let's say, a pitcher who's, who's got a great fastball. They're really looking at his mechanics, are there, are there features of his delivery that are red flags regarding arm trouble in the future? Uh, or how much movement is there on the pitch? So it's easy. I find a lot of people who kind of are amused to see when scouts have their radar guns, you know, as a young pitcher is, is throwing. 
but they're looking at a lot more than velocity. And it was really interesting to to kind of break down hitters and pitchers the way that scouts do. In reading the book, one of the things that, that strikes me about the scout is this this sort of uh, strange in between role that they that they play. Uh, on the one hand, they are uh, really sort of lone wolves in some ways. You describe them driving, you know, five hours to get to, uh, uh, you know, some some dusty field in, in Kansas uh, to see a high school kid. Uh, but on the other side of it, they are parts of these massive multi million dollar organizations. Uh, and I was, could you tell us a little bit about sort of the individual individuality out of of, of the scout versus sort of a, a group think that might be uh, necessary in order to to merge the scouting practice into the the broader context of, of the organization. Well, organizations uh, often have meetings with scouts to make sure that we're all talking the same language and using the same codes, whether it's numbers or or physical descriptions. Uh, But at the same time, I think good scouting directors realize just how much freedom they have to give, particularly scouts on the amateur level, going to high school and college games uh, to make their own schedule. I mean, it requires a great deal of self-motivation and um, in independence. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, you have to be looking farther in the future. So I think good scouting directors really are uh, alive to the, the individual insight that a scout may bring. Um, most of these guys are not currently, even despite the, the influence of the book Moneyball, um, are still not immersed in statistical analysis. The guys in the office may be. Hmm. Uh, almost every team now has a quantitative analyst studying college statistics, let's say, and particularly statistics at the pro level of other teams, minor leagues, play, minor league players. Um, the the scouts today are looking very much for the kinds of things they used to look for. But uh, the people in the office are sometimes winnowing that information or combining that information with statistical analyses, particularly of things like contact percentage, batting average on balls in play, um, ratio of of strikes to walks, whether we're talking about pitchers or hitters, and uh, sometimes coming up with real fines. Mm. And I was intrigued. The organization that interested me the most this year with the St. Louis Cardinals. They have a remarkable record for locating and developing talent. Uh, and the funny thing was, Matt, that they were pretty resistant to telling you how they do what they do. Mm. This is proprietary information. But uh, in some cases, I mean, you're talking about somebody like Alan Craig, who they picked up in a was it ninth round uh, draft, signed for about $15,000. Matt Carpenter, even a later round pick for $1,000, he's now an all-star. So um, anyway, some of that uh, uh, acquisition, some of those acquisitions come about because people in the office are combining statistical insights with what the field scouts are providing descriptive details about. 
Right. Uh, and as you, you mentioned in the book, um, you know, and as you, you just sort of described a moment ago, th- this is, of course, a, a process of, of telling the future. Uh, and it is a process that is just uh, the scouting process, which is just uh, uh, full of failure. You know, the sort of a, a joke about, about baseball is that, you know, it's one of the few things where if you fail 70% of the time, then you're a success. Uh, in scouting, that percentage goes up to into the 90s. Uh, the players are signed so young and so far away from the major leagues uh, that a very low percentage of them uh, become significant contributors. How does that does that impact the world of scouts? Sort of the, the idea that so much of what they do is not ultimately going to pay off in that direct way, but yet there is that one gem to find. Did you sort of feel this uh, uh, this uh, anything regarding this when you were you know doing your ethnography when you were working with the scouts? Oh yeah, I think that they are by nature optimistic people. Or and I've found a lot of times when I'd be traveling with them that they like to play the lottery. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so I think that this feeling of like, well, maybe the wheel will turn around and we're going to win, you know. So that uh, when in doubt, most of them are trying, they're looking on the sunny side. Now, of course, the people back in the office are not you know, licensing them to give contracts to people just on a whim. Um, but nevertheless, I think just uh, by nature, Scouts tend to be accentuating the positive when they look at young talent. I remember going, this would have been back in 81, to a tryout camp in Dover, Delaware, where there were about 70 players, and maybe only a few of them were credible at all as potential professionals. But uh, And some of them were laughably bad, but no scouts were laughing. I think that they understand that dreaming is built into baseball, you know, and if you're a kid, you may know just from your body type that you don't have a shot to be a basketball or football player. But think of all of the brilliant small baseball players there have been and still are. On the cover of the current edition of the book is a five foot seven left-handed relief pitcher for the Kansas City Royals named Tim Collins. Um, and it's a great example of how baseball has room for small guys. Uh, anyway, I think that, uh, you know, when I was looking at some of these hopeless uh, dreamers, uh, that is the, the young players showing up at a tryout camp, um, the scouts were, were genial about that. They didn't mock anybody. And I think it's because they're dreamers themselves. Uh, very interesting. Yeah, sit, sitting here uh, in in Boston with uh, Dustin Pedroia, who's about he listed at maybe five seven, or he's he's even shorter than that as our our former MVP uh, second baseman. Uh, certainly, that there there's a resonance to the idea that baseball is is open to a, a very wide range of uh, of body types. There is, of course, uh, an element of uh, physical stereotyping of uh, using. External markers to try to figure out what's going to ultimately uh, uh, develop for a player in the future, uh, and this comes across the books in a few in a few ways. In some some of the the elements that you talk about are sort of uh, things that I think an outsider would find uh, somewhat unusual. So you you, you uh, make repeated reference to to this phrase, the good face, uh, that there's something about a baseball player's face that. Uh, tells you something about his, his playing future or something about his character. Uh, it seems awfully strange, and it seems strange that people who uh, are going to be evaluated in such an objective way would use that kind of a measure. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, role of sort of visual, physical stereotyping and, and scouting? Oh, yeah. 
Uh, that amused me, Matt, when I first got into this, to read scouting reports where somebody would say, good face. And I asked Brandy Davis what it meant, because he was that was one of his favorite terms when he was describing a, an athlete he really liked. And he said, well, I don't mean that he's handsome. I don't mean that he's a pretty boy. I mean that he looks like an athlete. He's virile. He's mature. He's strong. And he says sometimes you can see that in the very bearing of a player. Now, I found this kind of funny, but the more I traveled with scouts, the more I began to understand what they were talking about. One younger scout said to me, um, I know what the good face is, but I can't get away because I'm a young scout with putting language like that in my reports. But he had gone to a high school game on the, uh, in Maryland uh, knowing only the name of the player he was supposed to be looking at. And when the visiting team with that player on it got off the bus, he said, I knew right away who the prospect was. You could tell he looked like an athlete. So I think these guys, it's almost a kind of shorthand. Now, I was fortunate enough this past summer to go down to the uh, training camp for the Baltimore Ravens football uh, team and uh, was talking to their scouts, who, of course, are they have the benefit of all sorts of physical tests and psychological tests that baseball scouts usually don't. And uh, so they've got on the wall of their war room all sorts of number codes and so on to evaluate players by position and by the results of their strength tests and running tests and so on. And yet one, the, the assistant general manager, Eric DaCosta, said, you know, we also do what we call face grading. And he meant really that you're talking about the athletic bearing and demeanor of a player. And um, I said, you mean the, with all of the numbers and all of the codes and all of the computerized stuff, they, the football scouts believe in a good face. So I think that clearly we're talking about something other than facial features. We're talking about the uh, out, outgoing, strong, virile demeanor of a professional athlete. And sometimes this shows up in the appearance. So I agree, I agree with you. I think it seems impossibly subjective, and yet I understood what that scout was talking about when he said, I recognize the prospect when the players got off the bus. Yeah, I mean, it could, in fact, be a case of just a particularly uh, unfortunate or silly term for something that, that is uh, uh, just sort of abstract and hard to describe. Uh, but I will say that, you know, that discussion of the good face and reading your book also kind of, uh, to me, blended into some other really, uh, I think, fairly uh, nuanced and interesting uh, discussion here of, of the relationship between race and scouting, um, which, uh, you know, you, you, you sort of, uh, you allow the scouts to speak for themselves in this issue, more or less. Uh, there's a, an interesting quote from the book. Uh, it's a, a scout describing Eddie Murray and for, for uh, those who don't know Eddie Murray he is an, a Hall of, he's a Hall of Fame player uh, and one of the hardest working players uh, of his era playing in the 1980s and 90s uh, and a scout notes in the book that he was stereotyped as quote a big la lazy power hitter a big lazy power hitter uh, and he was a power hitter but he was of course anything but lazy uh, what he was was an African American and uh, it's noted in the book that uh, most of the scouts are not most of the scouts are, 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 are white men um, 
and that this can create sort of a, a disconnect or, or uh, there can be a, a stereotyping that, that comes into this, which is counterproductive. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that in your original research for the book, which is in the early 80s, and, and have you seen a change uh, regarding that since then? Well, um, I quite agree. I mean, that the uh, there's a tendency for anybody, I think, to appreciate elements of a performer who reminds them of themselves. And so if you have, out of, let's say, 500 scouts, 480 of them are white, the language and the, um, the kind of intention of their reports may unconsciously reflect the kind of bias. I thought it was really interesting, Matt, that the person in baseball who most popularized the phrase good face was Al Campanis, who later lost his job because of the racist remarks he made <clears throat> when he went on Nightline with Ted Koppel one night. And clearly, even though he had been, I think, at one time a roommate of Jackie Robinson in the minor leagues, there was something, I guess, he was harboring in the back of his mind. Now, Eddie Murray's a great example because the, the term that was used in some of the scouting reports about him, I'm told, was lackadaisical. Mm. And I think that may be a code word for many, you know, white uh, scouts looking at black athletes if they don't seem to the scouts to have the same uh, style that they have had as, as players. Uh, so anyway, today it seems to me there's a lot more readiness to look beyond that kind of language. Uh, I'm not sure that the psychological tests that are given, these things where students or I see prospects um, either fill in the blanks or, you know, mark in little bubbles, is, is the solution to that. I think the solution is to have people who get to know the athlete. And one feature of scouting that I think changed more than anything over the years was the, when the draft came in, in 1965, scouts did not have the motivation, as they had before, to get to know a kid personally. And maybe some of the stereotypical language evolved uh, when you're having to look at more players and just make kind of uh, record impressions of them without getting to know the kid or the family. Yeah, as a point of clarification, uh, before 1965, uh, baseball scouting was sort of a free-for-all, and this is something that's really nicely described in the book, uh, where scouts from different teams would go across the country and try to convince players to sign with them. After 1965, a competitive draft uh, was put into place where uh, teams take turns selecting who they want. And, and this is an interesting point you make, that when uh, it's that free-for-all and you're competing for the player, there's a lot more motivation to really get to know them and for them to get to know you as a scout so they can trust you, uh, whereas when teams are, are picking in an order, uh, it's sort of, you know, there's no competition as to who's going to get them uh, beyond that selection process. Um, and that that makes sense to a certain extent. I think that's a really interesting thesis. I mean, one thing that you mentioned there, though, uh, which I think a lot of listeners might ask, uh, is that, so you say, you know, you, you, I think you were just throwing out the numbers, but if there's, you know, 500 or so scouts, you know, 400 and something of them are going to be uh, white white guys uh you know why is that 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 seems to be uh, especially if you look at the the contents of the major leagues with, the, with still a fairly high number of african-americans and a, and a very high percentage of uh of latin american players why is it such an overwhelmingly white profession i think because it's an old boys network even now but and yet 
the biggest broadening out of scouting and the hiring of, of scouts um, has been in the Latin America. And um, it was one thing that bothered me this summer, Matt, when I was trying to see how the game had changed. I really feel that the infrastructure of baseball in America, I'm talking about things like American Legion baseball, have really eroded a lot. And that uh, the, um, the talent pool in the United States seems to me, and I'm being pretty subjective about it, but scouts, I think, talk this way, too, um, it's, it's a shallower talent pool in the United States. Baseball doesn't mean as much to kids growing up as it certainly did when I was growing up. There are a lot of kids. I, one scout said if Willie Mays and Willie McCovey uh, were growing up uh, today, would they be playing baseball at all? So um, Latin America is really the hotbed of scouting in many ways. I mean, you've got a higher and higher percentage of foreign players coming into the majors each year. And uh, any intelligent scouting director is going to be hiring guys who really know the territories outside the United States. So some teams, and I'm thinking particularly the Dodgers, the Mariners, you know, have been making their, uh, uh, building their success on foreign talent. And, and to get that foreign talent, very often you have to hire scouts who are not Americans. Right, yeah. I mean, this seems to me uh, that kind of that 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 shift also seems to have something to do, perhaps, with what we described about the the uh, change from that free for all system to the draft system. Latin America remains sort of a free for all, uh, where teams go out and they just try to sign players, sort of like they used to in, in the U.S. Uh, and I wonder if that uh, is it makes it probably would seem to make it even more important to have local people who really know the area, who know more than just scouting, but really know where they're going and uh, what they're doing, because they not only have to identify the player, but they're also recruiting the player to a certain extent. Yeah, and some of the scouts that I most enjoyed time with this year are looking beyond the Dominican Republic, let's say, or even Venezuela. One of them, a guy named Mike Toomey of the Royals, believes that the next frontier of baseball talent is going to be a country like Colombia which has best been known or has been known best uh, as a soccer nation rather than a baseball nation. But he thinks, you know, the talents there, what it's going to take is a little more teaching and opportunity. And he, he believes that he's going to find players where other people aren't looking. But uh, I, anyway, I think that there are more and more, uh, there's more outreach in baseball than there would have been when I first began the project back in the 80s. Mm. Uh, just one last question on this topic of, of race and scouting. It really intrigues me. Uh, if, you, uh, if you follow sort of the world of baseball scouting a little bit, you'll see that there's a, a little bit of a debate, at least among sort of uh, maybe some of the more liberal-minded people, about this, this notion of, of comps, they're called, comparisons of current uh, prospects to future players. Uh, and there's uh, always a debate about why or whether it should be that players of one sort of physical appearance, mostly uh, on the form of race, are always compared to other players of that same uh, appearance or, or race. Uh, so uh, an African-American player who's in the minor leagues now will almost always be compared to a major leaguer who is African-American, uh, even though there, you know, there could be other elements, of course, about their games that, that, that do not match up um, as well as it would to somebody else. Did you come across this in your in your research, this idea of comparison, or was there any debate over the idea of whether or not race should be playing a factor, or if it's a useful indicator in any, any way sort of a, uh, to predict players' abilities? No, I didn't come across that much. 
what I did come across was a far greater emphasis than I would have seen when I first did the book on uh, studying other teams' minor league players. Uh, again, statistics matter more the closer players get to the major leagues. And while they can really be tools for finding talent, let's say at the college level, they're especially useful to find talent when in somebody else's double-A team. And uh, there are, now, I would say, just about every organization has a separate little army of pro scouts who spend the whole year traveling around looking at other teams' minor league systems to see if they can steal a player in a trade or draft him uh, in one of the esoteric rules that allow, allow them to get you know, players who haven't advanced or been protected. So uh, that was particularly interesting to me, um, just to see a kind of separate enterprise within scouting that is not focused on amateurs, mm. but on professionals and other, uh, of other organizations. And in that regard, I think if they're comparing them, it's usually statistical comparisons, right, right. which may be black to white or white to black. I didn't really see the racial thing coming up there at all. Well, that's interesting, and the, the sort of uh, turn towards a more... Uh... Uh, at least uh, attempt at more scientific analysis might be a way to uh, to mitigate some of those factors. Uh, you do discuss in the in the book in a few places the role that uh, science and technology and sort of the tension between uh, technology and sort of the scout's intuition and the scout's eye, um, and that ranges anything from uh, with anything from uh, radar. Uh, guns uh, and sort of uh, stopwatches, this sort of thing. Uh, Two, as I think you mentioned briefly earlier, uh, the role of uh, personality testing and these sorts of things. Uh, You have a really intriguing uh, uh, clip here in the book, uh, a quote in the book uh, from uh, something called the AMI, the Athletic Motivation Inventory. Uh, And uh, it's, it's this is a series of true or false questions that you describe as being something that uh, players would answer, and they range, they sort of go back and forth. It's really an intriguing thing. Um, you know, some of them are questions that make sense uh, that you might want to know about an athlete. Uh, I always do exactly what the coach tells me to do, for example, and the coach says true or false, or I just get tired thinking about a long, hard practice session, which makes some sense. But then built into the questions also are, are like these sort of absurdist little moments. Uh, they're supposed to answer true or false to the question, uh, athletic competition started just 10 years ago. Or... <laughs> or um, uh, something like most athletes do not wear uniforms, which maybe seems like a puzzle, like what counts as an athlete, or uh, this is this is this country is not the only one that has athletic competition. Uh, these questions are very bizarre, and I was just wondering what, what what was the logic of this sort of thing? Do they still do this kind of thing? It seems uh, it seems really out there. Well, they still do that kind of testing. I'm sure that I, I chose just to have a list of sample questions ones in some cases that did seem bizarre to me. Some of them may be tests of reading comprehension, you know. Mm. <laughs> some of them may be tests that are questions that are seeing if a player is answering honestly. If that, that one that says, I always do exactly what the coach tells me to do, if every question on the test like, is like that, I mean, every, if every question like that is answered with a pious answer, and there may be 300 questions, uh, the test would be flagged because of some doubts about the honesty or the forthcoming uh, nature of the, the athlete who took it. 
But the test you're quoting from is from the early 80s, and I'm sure that they've refined this over the years. I was uh, able, when I visited the Baltimore Ravens football offices, to see that they use a test very much like it, but it's one that they that is theirs alone. It's not uh, you know shared by any other team. And their questions were some of them very interesting. Um, that if uh, you know when I make a mistake, I dwell on it for a long time. Hmm. And if a player says true, and that player happens to be a defensive back, you know that's just a red flag. If every question like that were answered in a similar way, you'd say, I don't know if this guy is going to be a good, uh, you know, pass defender, because you get burned all the time. Similarly, if you were a relief pitcher, you know, and you answered every question in that way, that you dwell on your mistakes, uh, that's kind of, that's a bad sign. So there are still, these tests are still used, but I'm sure they're more sophisticated than they used to be. And uh, what about sort of uh, more more objective measurement technologies? Have you seen a development with things like radar guns or or stopwatches or video use? How has that changed scouting over over the years? Well, everybody's got a radar gun now, and uh, and I, I would, one of the biggest changes, of course, is that uh, when teams are meeting before the draft to make up their priority lists they're almost always looking at video footage that can be projected digitally. Back in the 80s, when I was uh, sitting in on the draft the Philadelphia Phillies had, there were some guys there who were wonderfully eloquent, and one of them was almost like a performer who would act out the stance or swing or pitching motion of players that he liked and uh, was able to sell the other fellows in the room, uh, just kind of on the basis of that eloquence. Today, they'd be looking at a screen, mm. and they'd be judging, I guess for themselves, the mechanics of a pitcher or a hitter. So I think video is one of the biggest things, but I think the future of scouting in some ways is going to involve a good deal more objective uh, elements like bat speed or... Um, you know, the physical testing that might be possible for reflexes on both a hitter or a, a fielder. Um, I don't know how that's going to come about. I mean, I, it seems to me bat speed matters a lot. Um, Chris Davis of the uh, of the Orioles has one of the fastest bats in the majors, fast, the fastest swings. But, you know, the, the swing, the, you have to have peak acceleration at the moment of impact. So I guess you'd have to figure out a way to measure that, not just the speed of the swing. Mm. So there are some real complications, but I agree with you. I think if if the radar gun to measure the speed of pitches is so portable, it ought to be possible soon to have other tools like it to judge hitters. Right. No, and you have a, a wonderful... Uh... A debate that you're you're quoting from between uh, an owner and a general manager in the book. Uh, this was the owner of the Royals and his general manager, uh, and the owner wanted more and more tests. He wanted more and more uh, objective information, uh, and the general manager was sort of arguing that ultimately it boils down to stuff that you can't test. Uh, and the owner seems to be arguing, well, as much as we can test, we should test. And you seem to be arguing that that the owner's perspective from that argument seems to have. Be, be winning the day, that testing everything possible does seem to be the future of things. 
I agree. And if I were an owner, I would certainly uh, try to set up as much testing as possible of players in my own minor league system. When they're at spring training, they're a captive audience. Uh, you can test particularly things like uh, visual acuity or the uh, ability to recognize the, uh, the spin of a ball at a certain speed and so on, the way that, that let's say, air, aircraft spotters could recognize the silhouette of an enemy plane. And so if you have that uh, potential audience there or test, uh, testing group, why not? It wouldn't cost that much money, I believe, to build up a huge database mm. of players in your own system and then to make, uh, you know, kind of deductions about the uh, future potential of other players. Right, and as as you note, the uh, the economics here are, are really sort of in favor of that, you would think, in that uh, there are studies that have been done about this, but a, a win at the major league level is worth several million dollars, Um it's hard to, I don't know the exact numbers on it, but uh, millions of dollars. Uh, and so, you know, if you could find one player or, 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 you know, make one better decision that would improve uh, a player's ability or you trade him for somebody else who's better, you could, you could actually uh, make a lot of money uh, for probably relatively limited investments. And I think that part of what's probably driving the, uh, the, the move towards better and better measurement is the, not just the increased money in the game, but sort of there's been so much study done of the economics of the game uh, and that the impact of certain players on both victories and that victory's impact on the bottom line. Uh, and so it does seem like things are, are moving in that direction. What was it that brought you back to this book? So as we mentioned uh, off the top, you wrote this, you started in 1981, came out in 1984, it was republished over and over again. Um, but now you've been with this topic for over, over 30 years. What, what is it that brought you back to it or keeps you coming back to it? Well, I, ha I haven't been with it continuously, Matt, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I still have followed the game and followed a lot of scouts. Unfortunately, almost all of the guys that I wrote about when I traveled around in the 80s, have passed away. And the few who haven't have certainly retired from baseball. But yet a new generation has come forward. And as I mentioned before, these are people who really love baseball. And they're, I mean, truly dedicated to finding talent. There's something quite inspiring about it, so I guess that brought me back. It was very funny that uh, about three, four months before Baseball Prospectus got in touch with me about doing a new edition, um, Audible.com got in touch to ask if I wanted to do an audio version of the original book. And I said, sure, but I don't want to record it. On the other hand, I have a son with a great voice who lives in New York City, and how about using him as the reader? So when they agreed, I went back over the material and kind of saw some gaps and opportunities to do new stuff. So when Baseball Prospectus got in touch with me, it was really a godsend. And those people, I had, a, I had stereotyped Baseball Prospectus as being stat heads, mm. you know. But instead, they have, in a way, their own army of scouts. I mean, these are people who are going to a game, at least a game, every day during baseball season and writing it up for the people who subscribe to their website. And um, I found that Baseball Prospectus was far about far more than numbers, and they were ready to uh, help me go beyond the original material in the book. So it was great. I traveled around this summer uh, from, 
obviously the East Coast from Syracuse all the way down to Florida, but uh, also uh, out to Seattle, for example, or down to Texas for some games. And uh, <clears throat> I really got a excuse me <clears throat> a sense of the panorama that's still part of baseball scouting. Hmm. One of the most amazing things uh, about uh, baseball prospectus, and, and uh, uh, I think this is probably part of uh, why your book has had such staying power, is that there is just a tremendous interest uh, in this process of scouting and this uh, finding baseball prospects, predicting the future uh, among people who do not have vested interests in it. So we talked about the economics of the game from the owner's perspective, uh, but there's people like myself and, and people who read Baseball Prospectus uh, who just really want to know not just about Major League stars, but they want to know about the future. Uh, and there's a market for that too. And that seems to me like something that's developed over time and probably has kept your book uh, relevant. I mean, more and more people seem to be interested in uh, outlets like Baseball America and Baseball Prospectus, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you're getting phone calls from those people wanting to talk about your book. Yes, and many of them are involved in fantasy leagues, right? and so they're especially on the lookout for young talent that they might be able to acquire for their fantasy team, uh, you know, beyond what other people in their league know about. Uh, I don't belong to Fantasy Baseball League. But I don't laugh at those people. I think I appreciate the kind of uh, analytical thinking they're trying to bring to their own appreciation of baseball. I right. think it's great. Right. They really probably have driven a lot of this uh, increased attention towards some of the uh, uh, more analytical elements of the game. Uh, we, we share, I think, uh, from looking at your book, uh, one of a uh, favorite writer over at Baseball Prospectus. I, uh, you, you wrote about Jason Parks a little bit. You actually uh, uh, compared him to David Foster Wallace, which I think uh, would be a surprising comparison for, uh, for somebody who writes about baseball prospects. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? online sort of, uh, I don't know if I want to call it a literary culture, but a culture of writers who are writing about prospects uh, in new and different ways. Well, uh, I don't know how Jason started out, but I do know that uh, I think he was from uh, the Dallas area and was writing about the Rangers, uh, maybe for a local outlet there, <clears throat> and then kind of came under the tutelage of a scout, scouting director, Don Welke, and as a Really interesting example to me of somebody who evolved uh, beyond numbers. I don't mean that he's left statistical analysis behind, only that he feels that you have to go, uh, you have to put eyes on the player to really know what you're talking about. So he's a busy guy, and uh, but he also writes in a very uh, engaging way. It's imaginative, at times funny. I think that, you know, he... He said to me at one point, I have a strange memory, and if I see a player one time, I'm able to recall later the uh, arc of his swing or the mechanics of his pitching motion. And I thought to myself, that is the exact same thing that one of the greatest scouts in the game said to me when I first began the project um, about his own ability. It's a visual recall almost as if you had a, a kind of video database in your brain that you see a player and you say, oh, yeah, that, you know, he reminds me of, and so on. So um, I think Jason has that kind of uh, ability to translate this into paragraphs to make his analyses not only quantitative but qualitative. 
and he's a funny guy. Right. I mean, he, he said at one point, um, I thought this was a great line. He said, scouting a player from somebody else's scouting report is analogous to uh, getting involved romantically with somebody based on their self-description in an online dating site. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's right. One, one of the one of the amazing things about uh, some of these creative writers, particularly somebody like Jason Parks, is they are they they are able to make connections out into different places. I think Jason, one of his uh, his real uh, one of the real interesting elements is that uh, he is very much open to sort of uh, self reflection on the sort of. Uh, uh, very physical, sometimes uh, sometimes uh, pseudo homoerotic elements of scouting that you're looking at bodies and you're talking about desire and people have crushes on on players and these sorts of things. Uh, and he he really puts it into a language that uh, that resonates in a really powerful way. And I think that you know this is one way where the internet has certainly opened up discourse, right? I think that somebody writing like that probably would have had a hard time finding an outlet in a previous era, but uh, is very much at home uh, with that kind of new uh, online mode of discourse. Yeah, and I think one advantage of writing online is that length is not such an issue. If you've got a lot to say, and if you, even if you want to be a little self-indulgent with some subjective you know, uh, uh, reminders, that's fine. And I think it fits in with what scouts do anyway. Uh, Matt, I was so struck when I was sitting in on a draft meeting in 1981 and a great scout named Moose Johnson was describing a young athlete he saw named uh, Walter Brister, who nicknamed mm. was Bubby, and as Bubby Brister, he later played in the NFL. Yeah, for, the, for the Steelers. His, yes, his baseball career went nowhere. I think he played one year in the minors. But anyway, in describing this guy for other scouts, uh, Moose Johnson said, his body reminds me of Mike Schmidt's. He has the same build and the same mannerisms. Now, he didn't mean that Brister was going to be as good as Mike Schmidt, but he was trying to find a language to communicate what he was seeing when he, when he watched the kid on the field. So it just so happened that the day that Johnson said that, I was reading a scouting report that had been written on Mike, Mike Schmidt 10 years earlier, and the scout, Brandy Davis, had said, this, this kid reminds me of Jim Fregosi. Now, Jim Fregosi, before he became a baseball manager, was quite a, an athlete, a, a shortstop for the Angels and the Mets. And, um, and, I, and I thought, like, okay, we're talking about a similar body type. I'm sure that if you had seen a scouting report on Jim Fregosi, it probably would have said, this guy reminds me of Al Rosen. You know, I mean, that's like I think scouts and people like Jason Park, who is a scout in my opinion, are seeing players through the lens of other players they've seen, and it's a it's a brilliant way to talk about talent. Right. Um, yeah. No. It's that 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 sort of chain back through the past is one of the most intriguing elements of this as both a, a sporting uh, enterprise, but also sort of as a part of American history. Uh, are you still Working on this? Is there going to be another edition of this coming out sometime in the future, or, or are you are you moving on? Is, are, are we still with Dollar Sign of the Muscle in terms of your uh, writing career? Oh, I don't think I'll be doing more with it. I mean, I I'm enjoying the renewed attention of the book, and I enjoy conversations like this very much. I'm currently editing the writing of a wonderful doctor who's now 86 and retired, named Richard Selzer, 
S-E-L-Z-E-R. And he's written fiction and essays, and he need, needed somebody to help him organize an anthology of his work. He'd already published, I don't know, a dozen books on his own. So this is an, a topic that has nothing to do with baseball. It just is one of the loves of my reading and, and talking to people. And as you mentioned earlier, I'm kind of a utility guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, in my academic career, I've done a little of this, a little of that, kind of following interests that pop up. And here was a writer, Richard Selzer, whose work I'd been following with, with real admiration for so long. This is, again, I'm, it's something that's just a joy to do. So anyway, to get back to your question, I don't think that there'll be a follow-up to this book by me, but I think that somebody ought to go around right now and write a book about baseball scouting in the new millennium. Uh, I had the opportunity with this Baseball Prospectus edition to do an epilogue that's maybe 15,000 words, but it was hopeless to think that you could sum up the changes in scouting over the last 30 years in a single chapter. And I think somebody younger and maybe currently connected ought to go do interviews with some of the people who are making major decisions in the game these days and uh, travel around, as I did, with some of the people who are just very quotable and fun. So there's another book to be done, but I'm afraid it won't be by me. Mm. Well, I suspect, given the uh, the increased attention that this book has has gotten with its re-release, uh, and it's more than a re-release, it's an updated release uh, from Baseball Prospectus, I, I imagine we will see somebody taking on that project, and I, I hope they do it with the same uh, combination of uh, sort of research interests, but also uh, journalistic uh, uh effort that that you put into it uh and i also do want to commend you for uh resisting the uh the ultra hyper specialization that we often uh, see in uh academia these days i think it's wonderful that you're you're crossing uh these different uh different areas of research uh i want to thank you so much kevin for uh for giving us uh, so much of your time uh for those of you uh, out there looking for the book, it's, again, called Dollar Sign on the Muscle. It's available from Baseball Prospectus. You can go to BaseballProspectus.com or Amazon or any number of different places. Uh, Kevin, congratulations on the re-release of this. Uh, it's uh, the, the old part's as good as ever and the new part's great. Uh, thanks for your time, and we appreciate you coming on the New Books in Popular Culture podcast. Oh, thank you. This has really been a pleasure. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you.